This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new AGV K6. What you need and what you want in a motorcycle helmet. Paddock Pass Podcast, 2019 end of season special coming at you from somewhere in the outskirts of Valencia in Spain. What a crazy last weekend of the year we had. Basically issues ranging from the retirement of five-time world champion Jorge Lorenzo to the aftermath and subsequent uh, chase to see who would be filling his space in the Repsol Honda squad. What about Johan Zarco? Where will he go on the 2020 grid as well? And what about the race? In the end, it was another Marquez cakewalk, but uh, we'll go and pick through the bones of that as well. My name is Neil Morrison, and I'm joined, thankfully, uh, by Mr. David Emmett of motormatters.com. As always, thank you for joining, David, and uh, good to see you. Good to see you. It's been good to spend a week with you, Neil. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've been here for six days now. Uh, some, I think shortly after the universe was formed, it feels like. <laughs> Yeah, it does feel somewhere in that region of time um we have basically well last night we had lost the will to live i think we've recovered some <laughs> enthusiasm i think i lost again. the will to live several times over the weekend <laughs> but uh it's been uh it's been a very long year and uh it's been a, a very long week to uh to top uh top off a very long year especially considering that we were coming to valencia thinking okay a nice uncomplicated weekend three championships are all wrapped up nothing really crazy to discuss it'll probably be a a bit of a straightforward shootout between mark fabio maverick as we've seen the last couple of uh the last couple of weekends and then we got a little email from uh, dorna early on thursday morning which basically was the start of everything uh falling in on itself uh, yeah, it was a um, hectic weekend at Honda. Um, we was it? Uh, yeah, was it an email? We, we I mean, there were sort of I think th Thursday morning uh, rumors started uh, uh, going around. Like, mm, is this really going to happen? And uh, then, sort of by Thursday, we all found out Jorge Lorenzo is going to retire. Um, but through most of my plans. Well, actually, the whole weekend ended up, you sort of, you know, sort of, I think this is roughly what I might do this weekend. And uh, none of that came came about. Yes. Well, I mean, the thought in my head on Sunday was, how come we're still not talking about Lorenzo's retirement? How has that not been the biggest, uh, <laughs> biggest storyline of this weekend? Because there's so much random th stuff going on, so many crazy rumors where we just thought, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. it, but before we get to that, I think uh, it's probably right that we should um, should talk a little bit about Lorenzo first and foremost, because I think once everything subsided and the seats are completely full for next year, there's still one possibility up in the air at this moment. We're recording on the Wednesday uh, of the uh, the final day of the Valencia test, and uh, well, I think you know once all of that is sorted out, we'll we'll look back in this weekend as Lorenzo's last one. Um, was it? the correct time for him to call his retirement? Well, he thinks it was the correct time for him to, to call his retirement. And I think it was. I think he probably still had, um, he could have come back if he'd been on the right back bike. I mean, it would have been great to see him back on a Yamaha because that would have been fascinating. Um, it would have been interesting to see him on a Ducati because that would have been fascinating. Um, it would not have been interesting to see him on a Honda because that just really 
didn't work at all. Um, so yeah, it was, it was the right time. And he was afraid, you know, he was, he, uh, I think he said on Sunday night after he got off the bike for the last time that he went to the grid properly terrified because, you know, he knew he had to get through 27 laps before he could, uh, before he could stop. Um, it's no doubting his talent, but the, the spinal injury, the one thing that riders, I think we've said this, all the time, every time we've talked about uh, about Jorge, it's been um, a spinal injuries, spinal injuries and head injuries. These are the only two things that uh, that racers fear. And it was clear that he was really worried about it. Um, it just seems everything, I think we have to forget about this entire season because everything went wrong from the moment or in January when he broke his scaphoid to uh, uh, riding dirt track. Yeah, everything had gone wrong. Even the three months prior to him joining Repsol Honda, you could say as well, um, with uh, the series of injuries he had at the end of last year. Um, whether you like him or whether you always agree with him or not, you can't really uh, deny that he, he shoots from the hip. He usually gives his point of view. Um, and I thought it was quite commendable what he said on uh, on Sunday. As you mentioned, the fact that uh, he had seen some big crashes um, in the junior classes. Uh, track temperatures were really cold all weekend. We are in the middle of November after all, even though we are in Spain. Um, and um, yeah, the possibility to to lose the front or to, to have a bit of a big crash. We saw a few of those during the MotoGP race. I mean, there, were, there was a big chance of that. And um, yeah, for him to basically at the start of the race say he was nervous, not because he was fearing what position he would finish in but because he was fearing whether he would make it out of this race you know walking yeah to walk away for, to be able to walk away from the sport yeah that's yeah. that was remarkable and I remember at, at Silverstone he obviously mentioned that uh, he was riding with a bit of fear that was when he made his comeback from the uh, the spinal injury that he'd sustained in in, in Assen he obviously was um, feeling a bit of fear then but I think this is probably how Lorenzo was feeling in a lot of races recently yeah uh, Philip Island in particular I'm sure yeah. he must have been feeling fear before that one yeah exactly every time the conditions I mean you saw a little bit if you compare for example Philip Island to Sepang had a much better race at Sepang he was much more comfortable he was much closer to the front um, I mean he was still a long way behind but he was much closer there was a uh, a hint of his potential again uh, because he wasn't afraid of crashing. He wasn't thinking about, I don't trust the front. I don't know what the front is going to do. I don't know what the rear is going to do. I don't know what the tire is going to do. I don't know if I'm going to get blown off the bike. Um, uh, am I still going to be able to walk by the, uh, you know, in, in 50 minutes time? That, that With that playing through his mind, it's a, it, it really was just time to finish. Yeah, and he said that he was uh, feeling a new degree of, uh, of happiness and freedom afterwards. And uh, I think that really tells the whole story. It must just, um, well, speaking to one or two other ex-riders over the weekend, they said that they had experienced something similar, all that stress and pressure that built up over months uh, just is released. And um, he didn't 100% rule out the fact that this would be the last time we would ever see him. He said he's going to go away and uh, travel the world, uh, you know, do some things in his spare time that he hasn't been able to do for a while. Um, and maybe when it gets to March or or April next year, um, maybe one or two factories might chance their arm and say to him um, that uh, he, could, he could maybe come back in 2021. Is this the last we've seen of him, do you think? I, if, if he's sensible, yes. Um, I think, I mean, 
honestly, I th- think he, on the right bike, he could obviously still be uh, still be competitive and you know win races. Um, but I think uh, the it, it's the it's the mental damage which this has done, which I think is uh, damage is the wrong word. It, it, it's it, it leaves a last it leaves a scar. Things like these like this leave a scar. You saw it. Uh, I think the best example, 2013, when he broke his collarbone at Assen, um, on the Thursday, flew home, had an operation on Friday, came back and raced on Saturday. And it was an, it was honestly one of the most amazing achievements I've seen that just someone digging into the depths of their soul to, 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 to race, to, to achieve something. Um, but it cost him so much. It took so much out of him. Uh, and then two weeks later at uh, the Saxon ring, he fell off again, bent the plate, bent, uh, broke, the, broke the collarbone again. Um, you ever since then, uh, because again, Saxon ring, top of the waterfall, turn 11, uh, the really, really fast, uh, right hander after a lot, a lot of lefts. Uh, it was in the morning. It was cold. Uh, conditions were a bit sketchy. It's where everyone, it's where everyone always crashes. Um, so, and I think though that planted a fear of a seed of fear and, and fear, fear and doubt in his mind, which stayed with him for almost for the rest of his career. Because since then, every time conditions were not either fully wet or fully dry, where grip was predictable. Um, he was, he lost a lot of time. He was very slow. So it was, yeah, I mean, it was, um, looking at that, looking forward again to, um, uh, to Jorge maybe riding, uh, riding again. I think unless, I, I mean, you have to feel strong again. You have to feel the strength to that feeling of invincibility again. And I think that's going to be very difficult for him to, uh, to, to reclaim again. And also you have to give up so much when you're racing. You have to sacrifice so much. You have to, uh, put so much of your, of the enjoyment in life aside to just focus on competing. And, um, it's going to be interesting to see whether he still has that fire in him. Yeah. And I think even before the Aston crash, okay, he had made some, um, some progress in Barcelona was up with the leading guys at the start of that race. But from what we were hearing from people in his camp or around him, um, there wasn't that absolute intense motivation. No at the start of the year to be complete. yes, okay, there were there were injuries from last year. There was the scaffold break in preseason now obviously prevented him being able to do a lot of training, but still you did hear that it wasn't quite wasn't as rigorously involved in yeah. the mental aspect of, of what was needed, the challenge that was ahead of him. It yeah. It, but as you say, that, that intensity, that mental intensity, that was what seemed to be missing. He wasn't prepared to, uh, to, to, to sacrifice. I actually thought there was quite an interesting parallel, if you like, between, because riding the, the, the Honda is such an incredibly in, um, intensive physical, um, experience. Uh, you need to be, as fit as you possibly can, fit as a butcher's dog. Um, the Yamaha, you don't need to be quite as fit. He was never quite as fit as, uh, uh, as 
uh, as he w- when he was on the Yamaha as as other riders because he didn't need to be because he could just be smooth. If you look at if you compare Maverick Vinales's heart rates to uh, Jack Miller's, which we saw on the during the um, the broadcast, which is fascinating, um, then it was really really interesting to see that Jack Miller's is way up in the sort of you know one seventy one eighty, which is really close to his sort of uh, to uh, to his. Um, uh, to his maximum heart level or the, 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 the lactic threshold. And the, uh, Mavericks was 120, 130, which is, you know, a gentle jog or perhaps not quite a, you know, a, uh, walk to the bathroom for me and you. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Six steps. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. So it's 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 clearly not as physically intensive, and that's um, uh, that I think got into uh, uh, Lorenzo's mindset. So he never trained, you know, he never he never had to train as hard. And then when he did start switching bikes and find that he did have to train, it was um, it, it it didn't come naturally to him. It didn't come naturally to him. Yeah, I thought it was nice that uh, he was honest and said. You know, this year, even if we were fighting for the top eight or the top six, still really wasn't what would uh, quench his no, kind of it's, thirst. It's, because exactly, he's motivation. A he's a winner yeah. and Repsol Honda are winners and anything below that is just falling below both of their expectations. Yeah, it's much more difficult to motivate yourself uh, to when you know you're going to be finishing, what is it, you know, 10th or, or 13th. Than it is when you are um, fighting for a title. Yes, exactly. Fighting for the possibility to be on the podium, to uh, to get a win. We see that with um, uh, I think Alicia Spargo said something very similar about that recently. You know, like top ten. You, yes, we can get on the top ten, but you really want to be putting yourself through everything just to get into the top ten. It's really mentally really draining. Yeah, absolutely. Now I think we've we've discussed Lorenzo's toils and issues with Honda plenty um this year on the panic pass podcast um so let's just um, kind of forget uh 2019 because uh what had gone before in the 17 years in which he had been a grand prix rider were pretty astonishing i mean we are looking at one of the guys that i think in years to come will be considered an all-time great would yeah, you agree it, with that yeah no question um uh it was Unfortunate for him that Mark Marcus came along when he did, because up until that point in time, he looked like being the greatest uh, rider, in, the greatest Spanish rider in history uh, in the Premier, Premier class for a very, very long time. Um, he was, uh, you know, he had at that point, up until that point, he had two titles. He retired with three, uh, with three MotoGP titles. Um, before that, it was Crivier, and Crivier had like a single, just a single title, and never looked. Capable of dominating in the way that, uh, that, that, that Lorenzo did. Um, and he was honestly, there are, uh, when you talk to other riders about who've seen their data, there are a few who they will say, yeah, I saw his data, but I can't do that. It's no use to me. And Lorenzo was one of those riders. He was there with, you know, with Casey Stoner, who could do things, um, that other riders just simply couldn't. And not, it's a very different way. He was a very different rider to Casey Stoner, but, um, uh, the most memorable quote I think I got about Lorenzo's riding style was from Cal Crutchlow, who said, um, the only time that we see the same lean angles as, uh, as Jorge Lorenzo is uh, shortly before we hit the floor. So it's just that, that, smoothness that ability to carry corner speed that puts him in my book one of the greatest ever 
yeah, I would concur with that, David. Um, writing a piece on him at the moment and was going through some old notes and uh, found a quote from Bradley Smith, actually, at uh, this round four years ago, uh, 2015, um, when Bradley was talking about going through the final sector at Valencia. And that's essentially, I think, three corners, turn 12, 13, yeah. and then into 14. And uh, Bradley was saying that he had gone through, at the time, Bradley had said that he was going through that sector absolutely on the limit. The thing was completely crossed up using maximum amount of throttle he could while maintaining his line, getting his breaking point completely right, exit in the final corner with uh, with everything that he needed. And he said he went and checked uh, Lorenzo's data afterwards. And Lorenzo's, I think his poll record from that year still stands, still stands to, correct, to yeah. this day. And Bradley said it how demoralizing it was looking at Renzo's data because he was losing half a second in that final sector alone. Half a second. Yeah. And Bradley said he was absolutely on the limit. So, yeah, similar thing. Other guys would look at his data and just think, I, I can't do that. That's that's quite astonishing uh, what happened. Um, but it was so much more than natural talent as well. I mean, Lorenzo at his best was a warrior. Like he was, oh, yeah. uh, he was mentally as tough as they come. Yeah, I mean, like he had the uh, good fortune to be teammates to Valentino Rossi, and he had the uh, doubly good fortune to be the um, team, uh, the, the, the teammate that Valentino Rossi didn't want. Uh, I think uh, even through through two thousand seven, I think as late as Laguna in two thousand seven, uh, because Yamaha had signed. Uh, if if I have my timeline correctly, uh, they had signed him already in 2006. Um, and uh, even as late as 2007, uh, when Colin Edwards was um, you know, Valentino Rossi's teammate, Colin was telling a report, was, oh, no, 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 I'll be here next year. Valentino doesn't want a, a Jorge. He's told, he's told Yamaha not to put him in. Yamaha were, they'd been a little bit burnt by 2006, by sort of, you know, end of 2005, there were rumours of, you know, Valentino looking at going to F1 and all the rest of it. And Valentino was, went to, I mean, he was getting towards, it, uh, he was getting towards the point where he, he might conceivably can be thinking about um, doing something else. And so Jorge was brought in as, um, you know, he was heading towards his 30s. He was in his late 20s. And uh, Yamaha brought in Jorge as his replacement because he was obviously an incredibly talented rider. Um, and Valentino Rossi didn't didn't take particularly kindly to that. Um, but he did. It gave Rossi an enormous motivation. And mo but Rossi did everything he possibly could to try to disrupt and destroy uh, Lorenzo. And Lorenzo, I mean... Valentino switched to Bridgestones on the understanding that he would be the only rider on Bridgestones and, and Lorenzo would have to stay on, uh, on Michelin's. Uh, so they stopped data sharing between the teams because two rival tire brands wouldn't, uh, weren't allowed to, to, to share data. Um, he really put up every obstacle. He engaged in proper psychological warfare to try to, uh, uh demoralize and, 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 and beat Lorenzo and Lorenzo withstood it and won championships yeah and he kept coming back that's what uh, that's what really stands out for me it was um, you know this was really before I was began working in the sport so I was just observing from the outside but I always find it quite frustrating that how obviously it's it's easy to say this watching from your sofa but um, Rossi it, it seems so easy for him to dismantle the likes of Piaggi and uh, Gibranoi back in his early days in, in MotoGP but then Lorenzo came along and despite all of this, he would get stronger. So in 08, he had a lot of knocks, but then in 09, he came back and he was fighting Rossi with the title. Rossi 
let's face it, you know, pulled his pants down, beat him in the end quite comfortably and Lorenzo made some mistakes. But then he came back stronger again in 2010 and was the better rider even before Rossi had. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the reason that uh, the, the reason Rossi fell off was because he was pushing too hard early in the morning. He was pushing, he was pushing hard on Saturday morning trying to, because he, he could see that Lorenzo was faster than him. And he was worrying uh, about the championship. He was starting to lose, you know, he was starting to lose ground. It was obvious that Lorenzo was really on a roll. And that was when um, uh, Rossi made a stupid mistake, cold tyres, uh, beyond it. He gets th thrown off, uh, breaks his, um, uh, breaks his, uh, you know, breaks his leg out for three races, I think. And, you know, title, uh, title over. So, yeah, I mean, Lorenzo, Lorenzo earned that one. The hard way, but even that one, you saw that um, uh, Lorenzo wrapped his title up at Sepang because I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg um, uh, after that, and um, uh, Rossi was Rossi won that race after giving. Um, uh, I, I, I seem to recall him giving uh, giving Lorenzo a little bit of a nudge as well, though in doing so uh, and hogging the limelight. Was that his 46th win on it a was, Yamaha? It wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So he was he was really playing it up, trying to overshadow the celebration of Lorenzo's first uh, first championship. So there was all the, even then there was all those mind games going on that that sort of uh, intense rivalry, and for Lorenzo to come through that was you know remarkable. You mentioned again just other things that stand out when I look back at his career. You mentioned the the, the kind of the scars that he faced after that ass and crash, and then re-breaking the collarbone a couple of weeks later at the Saxon ring. But then he came back, he recovered, and how he nearly rescued the title yeah. at the end of that year, I think, was still one of the most astonishing things I've seen in my time watching MotoGP, like that comeback at the end of the year when he won at Phillip Island, Marcus was disqualified, then he went and won at Mategi, which was at the time a bit of a Honda yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With an immaculate race, and then what he tried to do at Valencia. I mean, what he was doing that weekend at Valencia, he was operating on another level completely yeah. from the rest of the field. He was basically calling the tune. He could dictate the pace however he wanted, and no one had any answer for him whatsoever. Yeah, um, that was that was astonishing to watch, and. 2015, I mean, I still think if you'd go back through the entire history of the 500 MotoGP class, I think to his achievement in 2015, where he essentially beat Valentino Rossi by being faster than him yeah. when Rossi was having one of his best seasons ever. I think that is one of the one of the standout achievements of, of all time, genuinely. And, you know, you might, you know, some people might get caught up in all the rubbish that went on at the end of that year, but... The fact of the matter was that Lorenzo was faster than Rossi throughout yeah, that year. Exactly. I mean, the only reason that uh, Rossi got caught up in the conspiracy theories is because he was getting more and more worried because Lorenzo was pushing him, even though uh, Rossi was leading that year. Um, all year. Yeah, all year. That's right. I mean, I, but I, re I remember seeing Rossi get off the bike at, uh, at Mategi and he looked, you know, he looked older than me. Um, he looked completely drained. All of the energy was gone. And I think that was like the point where you thought, you know, this is not, this is not done and dusted. He's really pushing him on. And for Lorenzo just to be utterly relent, relentless. He's, I mean, like uh, I've always compared him. One of the great joys of being a motorcycle racing journalist is you get to actually stand very close to the track and watch these people go past. Um, one of the greatest joys was watching uh, Jorge Lorenzo at Jerez. 
um, watching him sliding through. I mean, the, the way I would stand at like turn, uh, what is it, nine, nine and ten, the the, the the two tight right-handers watching and then go through the 11 and 12. And it's always amazing. For the it was, yeah, always. it was always amazing. But it was amazing through those short right handers as well because he would he, he was climbing from one side of the bike to the other, stopping it, starting it, accelerating it. But you never saw anything. You never saw any motion. And he looked exactly like um, the uh, what is it? The T one thousand, the Terminator one thousand. The 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 like he was made of liquid metal. He could move from one place to another without actually displacing his body. And you would sort of like see him. Hang on, wait a minute. He's hanging off that bike. How did he get there? I didn't see him. I didn't see him actually move. He looked so smooth, so effortless, um, and so just incredibly fast. And that was the thing. He was like the Terminator. He just kept coming. He just kept coming. You could never write him off all the way to the end. Yeah. Um, one final thing about a thing that stands out was uh, 2015 and Aragon. Lorenzo uh, had suffered a whole series of unfortunate incidents, slight mistakes, things that had cost them. For any other rider, you would think, okay, that's the moment that he lost it all. Um, but as you said, he just kept coming and he crashed out of the race at Mizano. And at the time, that seemed like that was it. It was gone because he had already, I think, had a, a mistake at Silverstone with um, his visor fogged up. Yeah. Rossi had beat him and then there was another race perhaps as well before that where he had been so much faster in practice, but that hadn't gone his way. And then... He had problems at... Uh, I think he had problems with his visor fogging in Qatar that year as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. Um, but show up at Aragon two weeks later and FP1, Lorenzo breaks the lap records, I think on his third lap in FP1. And you just think, wow, this guy really is not giving up <laughs> at all. And then he wins the race. I think Rossi finishes third and suddenly we've got like a, a, a title race again. Yeah. And for him to just have the mental strength to keep going all the way yeah. until Valencia. I mean, that was, a, I think, a, a really remarkable season as well. Um, have we, we've never seen anyone this consistent. You talk about his laconic, smooth style, which became synonymous with him. Um, we've never seen someone this consistent either. No, I mean, honestly, the way that he would do, um, it used to be, it used to be a joy just to see, look at his time sheet, especially when, when he was on the MR, when you'd see, when you'd see his lap pace, he would do lap after lap after lap within, uh, you know, within a tenth. And that means hitting, the exact brake marker at the exact same time at the braking, the exact same intensity, opening the throttle with the, ex with the precise uh, uh, amounts to get the exact amount of grip that's still left in the tire out of it. Um, it was truly uh, that that focus. If if to me, I think his greatest um, strength was his focus, his ability to just close off the rest of the world for 45 minutes and do one thing really, really well. Uh, that was something, that's a skill, I mean, that's a skill that I envy because it's the kind of skill that I think I could master, the whole, you know, riding a motorbike thing. I'm not quite sure I could manage that, but that intensity of focus just on one thing, um, doing, repeating these actions over and over and over again at, at a an intensity and a pace that no one else can match, that was Honestly, amazing. I think Cal said earlier this year something about if you looked at him going through, even on the Honda, uh, Lorenzo on the Honda, going through uh, on one of his runs, there was one sector where he went through and it was uh, the same the same sector time for about 10 laps in a row. He still had that. It's clear that it was still there. But um, there were lots of other things 
that were getting in his way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been ultimate victory in Barcelona on the Ducati last year. Uh, there was maybe a 10-lap run in what was a 26-27 lap race where I think his his lap times were within something like 700s, 800s of a second yeah. in a row. Yeah. And you just think of all the different variables that are going on. Tires yeah. are changing, fuel loads lessening, uh, temperature might be going up or down certain places, um, wind, you know, all these things. And he was still just metronomic. Um, it really was something to behold. And you would always know if in FP3, Lorenzo was going and doing a 10-lap run, which took everyone's breath away, then you knew that everyone faced a mighty old yeah. job on uh, on Sunday. And I guess, you know, this is a guy that took on the greats when they were operating at great levels. Yeah. We've mentioned Rossi, but he also beat Stoner in yep. 2012 over his full season when Stoner was the reigning champion. Yeah. Uh, he beat Marquez. He's the only guy to beat Mark Marquez over a championship yep. in MotoGP as well. And uh, you could put a lot of that down to... Uh, youthful exuberance and overconfidence on Marquez's part, but also it was because there were races where Jorge was forcing him to crash. Yeah, I mean, if there was one rider um, uh, on the grid who was consistently capable of being faster than Mark Marquez, it was Jorge Lorenzo. Um, it, he needed things to go his way, and then were conditions in which he would be horrendously slower, but... Mark, uh, you know, if he'd have stayed with, if he'd have stayed with what, you know, we're getting into the what ifs. If he'd have stayed with Ducati, what would he have done this year? Um, so many questions. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's just one of the shames that um, that essentially Marquez's uh, biggest rival for the last three years, more or less, has been in a kind of uh, cycle of adaption and trying to get up to speed, playing catch up. And in some ways, over the last three years, that has deprived us of um, a really interesting and intense championship fight that went all the way, maybe 2017, okay? David Cioso took uh, Marquez all the way. But certainly in other years, you think if Jorge was yeah. at his best on the Yamaha, uh, Mark would really have something to think about here. Yeah, absolutely. Or if, um, uh, like I said, if he'd have stayed at Ducati this, uh, the, this year, I mean, I think his win at Magello was also something really, really special because uh, we're talking about his, you know, great determination. Um, the fact that he stuck at it, he stuck at Ducati, despite all the criticisms, despite Claudio, Claudio Domenicali's best efforts to chase him away successfully. Um, he still, he just waited until all of the pieces were in place. He did, he did need all of those pieces of, of, of the puzzle to come together. But when they did, he was absolutely unstoppable. He was supreme in Magelli, supreme in Barcelona. It was like seeing the old, uh, the old Lorenzo. To do that on two bikes is, um, I think, um, achievement enough. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So Jorge Lorenzo. Retiring from MotoGP as uh, definitely one of the legends, not just of the modern era, but I think we can safely say all time when you just look at the number of victories he's accumulated over all three Grand Prix categories, number of pole positions, fastest laps and podiums, second highest podium number, I think, of all time behind Valentino Rossi. Yeah. 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 Where, where, could you rank him? Where would you put him? It's tough to say. Um, it's always tough to say, but I would... Put him in the top 
it's tough to say because he's had such a long career. Yeah. The other guys that you would say were the greatest or among the greatest of all time were around for seven, eight years by comparison. Yeah. Um, but I think you would probably have to put him in the top 10 or top 12 riders of all time. Yeah, sure. oh yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's easily top 10 and he's sort of sort of in the conversation for top five. But uh, it's one of those things where you're thinking... Mm. Yeah, it's just as... It's, you know, he did have his flaws. Yeah. And when he was bad, yeah, it, it, it did go very yeah. bad. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, like he was 90% perfect and 10% um, really not very perfect at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, but well, yeah, Lorenzo, I have to say, um, yeah, a bit, uh, bit sad, a bit uh, emotional. I think I was seeing him line up in the grid for the last time on Sunday. Um, well, we've praised him and uh, said plenty of nice things about him, but he did leave a bit of a mess he, in Repsol Honda. He did leave a massive mess in in uh, in Repsol. And by that, I mean, basically, it's the last round of the season. Everyone's got their contract for 2020. Everything's sold up. And then one of the hottest, best seats in the entire paddock becomes available. And suddenly lots of names are being discussed and being... Uh, potentially pulled from existing places. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really complicated situation. Um, I mean, filling the second Repsol Honda seat is complicated at the best of times um, because there are, I mean, it, it's a prestigious seat. You want to put the best rider on there. You know, the reigning world champion, you're also going to be teammate to a reigning world champion, which also make, makes things just as complicated as or even more complicated than you might have uh, expected um uh, you have to find somewhere who can ride you really want to have a nice wide selection of really high quality candidates but um the uh high quality candidates have all got <coughs> contracts for 2020 and there's no way you're going to be able to sort of tear, tear them away so that limits your choices um and the choices get very complicated indeed there were i think there was a list of you know maybe four or five riders um which you know changed depending on who you spoke to <coughs> yeah or, and what time of day it was <laughs> yes and what way the sun was coming through the window yeah, exactly yes that's right yes that's right i mean you know if you uh, anyone trying to read it read the tea leaves needed was getting through an awful lot of tea bags to try <laughs> and figure out what was what was going on um but essentially we had a list of it seems Alex Marquez, yeah. Cal Crosso and Takanakakami, possibly Joanne Sarko as well. Yeah, but I mean, I I heard maybe Alvaro Bautista as a sort of a stopgap because he's on an HRC because uh, he's on an HRC contract and it would have been it would have broken them uh, it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have broken very much uh, maybe Stefan Bradl but then Stefan Bradl is uh, incredibly important to Honda's testing program uh, it was literally sort of going through and trying to figure out um, I mean I wouldn't say it was a list of bad options but all of them had complexities uh, difficulties um, challenges there were there was no obvious favorite there was no easy solution all of them came with risks we saw Joanne Zarco walked away with KTM when he found out that he couldn't uh, when he couldn't ride the bike 
Um, Cal Crutchlow has been a lifelong monster uh, athlete and it'd have to be Red Bull. And also Cal likes to tell us things, which um, uh, factory teams tend not to appreciate. Um, Takanaka Academy's had one fifth place in MotoGP in two years. Yeah, exactly. You know, Tak is good, but, you know, is he really good enough to be uh, uh, to, to be in, in the factory team? Uh, Alex Marquez. It's the Repsol Honda team. It's the, it's, I mean, unless you dominate, utterly dominate, um, then you can lay claim to a sort of a, a, a factory, a factory seat outside of Suzuki, you know, a Repsol Honda seat or a Monster Energy Yamaha seat. If you come through and you're really obviously much better than the, the, the than your rivals, then you can say, yeah, okay, we should put him on it. Um, Alex Marquez has the disadvantage of being called Marquez. Um, so anything, anything at all looks like nepotism, whether there is nepotism there or, uh, or not. Uh, he is reigning Moto 2 champion. Um, so it just, it just looks bad. And it's, I, I mean, we all thought, I mean, on Sunday night, we were told by several people that, you know, the deal had been done. The contract was set. Um, uh, they'd, uh, they, they had it ready to go and, uh, there'd be a, Press release at uh, sort of early on Monday morning, maybe sort of Monday lunchtime, and then it'd be done. And then lunchtime came and went, and then two o'clock came and went, and we were still waiting. And no, no, you were waiting. <laughs> I wasn't at the train <laughs> because yeah, I made the mistake of having an interview with someone. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting interview with Lynn Jarvis, which I was very grateful, and he gave me lots of really interesting information. However, it did mean I was at the track and was subject to some of the the the, the some of the you know some of the worst of the behaviour of the uh, of the press. Everyone standing around outside garages and God knows what else. It all became. I mean, it was mild. Now I can look back and laugh, Neil. Um, at yeah, the time, whereas, I, whereas on Monday I was pointing and laughing. Hey, yes, indeed, indeed. Exactly. No, I would have done exactly the same in your situation. Yes, Alex Marquez. Is he the right choice for Repsol Honda for 2020? It's a one-year deal. I'll tell you. I'll tell you November next year, mate. Um, it's not a terrible choice. Um, it's probably the most risky choice Repsol Honda could make. Um, they can justify it. He's the reigning Moto Two World Champion. You can point to he's the reigning Moto Two World Champion. Doesn't the Moto Two World Champion um, uh, deserve a ride? Yeah, he's it, a two-time world champion. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But um, again, the pressure. If if. Mark was off doing something else, uh, putting Alex Marquez in that seat. He would still be under an enormous amount of pressure because it's the Repsol Honda seat. Um, then there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of rumors and tittle tattle that Mark really pushed for Alex. He really wanted Alex on that bike. Um, and the, I mean, it's, it's not. There's a small matter of someone's uh, 2021 contract being negotiated this time as well, right? Yeah, correct. And currently, the, your quickest route to a MotoGP championship is to have a certain Spaniard on a motorcycle. Um, the way he's riding doesn't really seem to matter which motorcycle, just any motorcycle. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a very very high stakes game. 
Um, it's well worth actually doing it. You know, it, it, it's worth giving in to Mark's anything that Mark has demands. Mark. Now we're going to have to start talking about Mark and Alex, a bit like Paul and Alesh, because of uh, for, for the same reason. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, you can't really risk losing Mark Marquez. That's that's the problem. But by giving in, uh, you spare the rod and spoil the child. Um, you give him more power. You make it more difficult for him. Uh, you, you make it more difficult to say no to him next time. Um, and you increase the risk that, uh, you know, you upset him and he leaves next time. I, I honestly think that this move, signing Alex Marquez, increases the likelihood that Mark will leave Honda in the mid, mid-term. Why? Because, um, it's likely, I mean, let's say Alex has a, positively mediocre year next year. I mean, it's way too early to, to, to say, but unless Alex is really good, um, there's going to be, there are going to be much better riders on the market, uh, more experienced rider. I mean, look at Jack Miller. Jack Miller is incredibly talented. He's shown that he can bully a difficult bike around. He's not afraid. Um, he's got lots of speed. Uh, I would put Jack Miller on the, ba- uh, on the bike in a heartbeat, but, there isn't, a, you know, Jack Miller's got a contract for 2020, so, so you can't. Um, so there is next year. Also, we're going to have to make decisions about, uh, or Repsol Honda are going to have to make decisions about who to put the bike on the bike in 2021 uh, quite quickly because, I mean, we're waiting for what Mark does. Uh, we're waiting for what Valentino does. And once we know those two things, then lots of pieces will quickly start to fall into place. But that'll be after maybe five or six races. And I can't see Alec Marquez being, you know, uh, troubling the top five after sort of five or six races. So there's going to be question marks asked of him, asked of Honda, asked of Mark all through this. And the, uh, inevitably, when riders leave, they like, they leave for, for reasons of ego, it's always because they felt they weren't treated properly. It's never because they felt that they were, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's never the, the old win on two bikes or, uh, you know, prove that you're the greatest of all time. It's never that. It's just that they, they felt slighted by, uh, by, by, by factory management. And this, I think, increases the risk of upsetting Mark Marcus. And because it increases the risk of upsetting Mark Marcus, it increases the risk that Mark Marcus goes somewhere else. So, uh, placate Marquez in the short term, but uh, possibly piss him off in the long term is what you're saying. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Okay. Not so, that I'm advocating beating small children, I should uh, <laughs> I should point out at this juncture. Yeah, but knowing uh, your current mindset after uh, spending six straight days, <laughs> yeah, yes, I yes. wouldn't put that past you. <laughs> um, so the Repsol Honda drama, that was only part of the story over the weekend because on Saturday afternoon uh, a very 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 strange rumor started doing the rounds and it seemed to be that uh, Johan Zarco the fact that he wasn't getting the Repsol Honda seat uh, was causing some turmoil in a rival factory and um, where this rival factory was possibly going to put Zarco was going to have massive implications for their current rider liner. Yeah exactly I mean um, Dorna are very keen on having 
uh, Joanne Zarco in the championship. The reason for this is because Claude Michy, the, um, um, the promoter of the French Grand Prix, um, is See, or he believes that it's really important that we have that we have Joan uh, Zarco on, on the grid. It helps him sell tickets because uh, I, I think we've said this before. Joan Zarco is French, no doubt about the fact that he's French. Fabio Quartararo also has a French passport, but a lot of French fans seem to regard him as a uh, um, as a renegade Spaniard who, um, uh, you know, he uh, left his country to go to Spain at quite he's a young seven, age, seven years old, I think. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's he's, he's virtually Spanish. Um, so he doesn't have the same sort of pull as, uh, as Zarco. Uh, Claude Michy is also uh, acting more or less as uh, Zarco's personal manager since um, Zarco left um, uh, left KTM or, and dropped um, Laurent Fillon. Oh yeah, and Jean-Michel Bell. Yeah, yes, yeah. Good point. So there's lots of um, uh, there's lots of these complexities. Claude Michy is putting putting uh, pressure on. Carmelo Espelata, and so Carmelo Espelata is, you know, talking to people, looking to find, see if there's a way to put him on the grid. That has caused a certain amount of turmoil in Ducati. So let's just uh, go through some of the possibilities that were being discussed on Saturday, according to what we were hearing uh, in the rumor mill. And some of those possibilities were that there would be, well, there wouldn't be a swap. That Jack Miller would be going up to the factory team to replace Danilo Petrucci. Yep. Joanne Zarco would be going into Pramac yep. to replace Jack Miller. And Danilo Petrucci would then possibly be moved to Avintia to replace Carl Abraham. Yeah, exactly. And that is, well, for I mean, a start, yeah, exactly. For a start, that's absolutely outrageous because Danilo Petrucci won a race this year. Um, and it was third in the championship. Yes. Or- well, most of the season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it, I mean, Petrucci had a fantastic first part of the season, but like he said, you know, he used a lot of um, uh, used up a lot of energy. It, it cost him a lot of energy to survive through sort of the first half of the season, and then the second half it started badly with his uh, with his uh, his press manager and, and friend, I think, Lucas Amprini dying. Um, uh, again, lovely man, miss him. Um, he was a that had an impact. Petrucci struggled in the second half of the season. I don't think there were very good tracks for him. He has continued to struggle with grip in the in warmer conditions. Once the track gets greasy, he can't create the grip. He's really fast in the car in, in the mornings, but we don't race in the mornings. Um, and uh, yeah, so he he had a quite a difficult uh, period. He doesn't deserve to be replaced by. Well, he, he deserves. A second chance. He deserves a second chance in the um, uh, uh, in the factory seat, and then by the end of next year, you'll know whether he whether he's good enough to deserve a, a whole season. Jack Miller deserves a, a seat in a factory team, hundred percent, because of the because he's again he had a and he had a very very strong second half of the season as he's got his head around not spinning the rear everywhere, um, but moving him around was. Uh, at this stage, that's yeah. right. And the whole reason this is necessary is because Joan Zarco said re- basically refused to go to the Avintia team. Yeah, that's not a top team, is what he said to us on there. Which is true. Which I mean, it's 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 correct. I sat outside. I was uh, working in pit lane this uh, the, this week, and there was a massive pool of oil outside the Avintia um, <laughs> uh, garage. 
which they'd had to throw uh, chalk dust all over to uh, to try and uh, soak it up because uh, the, the, one of the one of their bikes had let uh, had let go and sort of you know spilled its guts all over the uh, all over the pit lane. So there is there's lots of issues there. It's understaffed. It's um, uh, yeah, the level of expertise within the garage is not. Com- comparable to a top team. Yeah, they are no factory Yamaha. No. Um, however, that rumor seemed to be put to bed, or that idea seemed to be put to bed. I, I, what I still can't work out is, is was this people behind the scenes at, at Dorna working hard on this? Was it even being considered at the top levels of Chikadi? I mean, this, well, this seems you, to be a bit of a mystery. I mean, if you had to choose between Joan Zarco on an, on an Avintia and um, someone else on, or you know, either Carl Abraham, I mean, Carl, uh, Abraham Tita Rabat is world champion. Sure. And, uh, I, I get I get the Zarco to Avintia thing, but yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the kind of... Once Sarko refuses to go to Avintia, then you've got trouble. Then you've got to, then you've got to try and squeeze something else in instead. But who who is thinking of doing the squeezing? Or is it Delinia in your eyes? Because from what I gathered and speaking to certain people at Chikadi on Saturday night and Sunday, Chiabatti and uh, Paolo Campinotti, the head of uh, oh, the Campinotti of, was of furious. I mean, these guys were absolutely against this idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it, I mean, I would suspect that um, conversations were had at an even higher level. You know, Claudio Domenicali has proven one thing over the years, and that's that he is really good at destroying uh, Ducati's MotoGP efforts. Um, we saw it with Casey Stoner. Uh, we saw it with uh, Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, we, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing it now with them messing around with the uh, with with this situation. That's got to sort of sap the morale of, um, of Danilo Petrucci. Um, it's going to mess with uh, Jack Miller's head. I don't even I don't even get the sense if Jack Miller had to choose. Uh, I. I mean, I think Jack Miller wants to be in the factory team, but he wants to go feel as if he goes there by right that, he, that he's earned it, and not just be promoted, be uh, out of the Pramac team because he fits in that team really well. It's a um, it's a bit of a wild child team anyway. It's all um, it's all a bit uh, loosey goosey, and uh, that's very much that very much fits with with, with Jack's character. So I, I think that would. Um, uh, I think if he was offered at the end of next year, when he's offered a, a, a contract, he's going to 100% be in a factory team because he's because he's going to deserve to be in a factory team. Yeah, yeah. One, of the, one of the most improved riders, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, the second half of this yeah, year. Yeah, absolutely. A, a, a genuinely a rider who's improving with age in terms of maturity and all the rest of it, and he's starting to understand playing the long game. Uh, you saw it with Marcus. Marcus lost 2015 because he he was trying to win everything. You're seeing it with Quattararo now. Quattararo insists on being uh, the fastest in every session. There's, uh, to a certain extent, there's a reason in that. It's because with the Yamaha, you have to start in the front two rows. Otherwise, uh, it's too difficult to overtake. But even then, with Fabio, he likes to not just be sort of on the first two rows. He likes to be on that particular spot. So that's, again, that's youth. There will be, as you learn, as you get older um, in and it's not just true for motorcycle races. Uh, you learn to pick your battles. You uh, learn to look, try to win the war rather than the particular uh, battle ahead of you. And really, that I think has been the biggest improvement for Jack Miller. Yeah. Um, so 
at the moment, uh, Wednesday, um, the final day of the test, um, it seems that uh, at least in Pramac and the factory squad, um, the seats are decided. However, there remains a possibility that Johan Zarco uh, could end up at Avintia next year. He had a meeting with uh, Delinia, with uh, Paolo Giabatti, Chicari Sporting Director, on Monday at Valencia, in which they appeared to try and convince him to uh, take a seat in Avintia. It seems that part of their uh, negotiating uh, tactic was to offer more uh, factory support than is currently being offered to the uh, Avintia team. Uh, we then had a press release from Avintia saying that, hey, we're now a very real satellite team. Um, they were before, obviously, but now we're, we have closer links to the factory. And that appeared to be another measure to convince Zarco that uh, yeah, it's worth taking. Again, there was also, that was also been in the works for a little while because um, uh, if you remember there was the talk of when both Carol Abram and um, Tita Rabat renewed there was talk of them demanding a 2020 bike they were they, they, they really wanted a GP20 for next year obviously they were never going to get a GP20 because Avinci can't afford a GP20 um, plus Ducati can they make five GP20s uh, it's a small matter of money um, and if the money's available, then, then, then anything, anything can happen. But I think she doesn't have the kind of money to, it, a lot of money. it would have to be a lot. Considering how long it took them to work out Miller's deal. For next yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it would be, it would be a strain on resources and take a lot of, um, uh, take a lot of work. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I think the renewal was a little bit longer in the works, but it, did come out at a particularly opportune moment. Yes. So it's looking, I think Johan Zarco went back to France after um, Sunday's pretty terrifying crash in Valencia um, to have uh, some ankle ligaments uh, looked at, to have some physiotherapy done um, on his injury. Um, but there are some speculation this morning, uh, which is hinting that he might well choose Avinti. Of course, the other option for him is to go to Mark VDS in Moto2. That's something that we still haven't discussed either. I mean, the World Championship winning team in Moto2 for the second time in three years uh, has lost its world champion. World champion and principal challenger for 2020 and uh, spare thought for Joanna Levy yeah. uh, and all those guys down at... Um, the Mark VDS squad. Yeah, because they, they've turned that team around uh, yeah. uh, this year. It's been, you know, they've done really well. They've won the championship. And if and if Zarco does go to Avintia, I mean, I'm really struggling to think of yeah. riders that are available that they could put in there. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because because Moto2 contracts always have a standard clause in uh, I will ride for you next year unless I get an offer of a MotoGP contract. So they, uh, a, a Moto2 Two rider can always get out of their contract. Um, uh, you know, it, it's a get out of jail free card, if you like. Um, but at this point, I don't, I mean, you would know better than I, Neil, which riders are available. I can't really think of any names. They would, they could probably get a top rider, but they'd have to buy them out of their contract. And it would mean upsetting a lot of people and spending a lot of money before you've even got them to turn a wheel yeah a lot of the spanish journalists were saying someone like hector garzo who's been riding in the, the model e world cup this year and the european model two world uh, not world championship the model the, the european model two world champ yeah <laughs> the, the cv motor two european championship that one yeah, yeah. that one exactly <laughs> uh so garzo 
um, as being a name, but I mean, uh, no disrespect to him, but that's not exactly a name that uh, screams of World Championship Challenge. Um, yeah, um, that's going to be interesting to see what happens down there. Yeah, so let's see what happens. Uh, Mark VDS in the coming days, they're obviously testing at Jerez this week. Um, and it seems that Sam Lowe's will be the only representative there. We'll probably have some more developments quite soon indeed. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break after that. And we'll come back with a little bit of testing news on winners and losers from the final race of 2019. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new AGV K6. The best helmet for any use made from technologies developed in MotoGP. Finally, a comfortable, versatile, and safe road helmet for any motorbike and any rider thanks to the same advanced materials and innovative technology used to help world champions achieve the maximum in the most extreme conditions. Everything you need is now combined with everything you've ever wanted. The new AGV K6 Helmet. Okay, welcome back to the third and final part of uh, this latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, there was some testing that went on yesterday. Um, aside from Alex Marquez debuting, and well, we had the uh, the debut, the official debut of Brad Binder on uh, KTM and its RC16. I mean, it wasn't uh, any massive movements or compared to previous years um, when we had huge riders um, changing brands or things like this. Um, but uh, some new pieces to discuss, uh, some new directions, as always, uh, that we see at these tests. Um, anything stand out? Uh, well, I mean, to me, what stood out was there was there seemed to be a, a lot to test here. I mean, uh, one of the advantages of not swapping riders around between teams is that um, it gives uh, much more consistent feedback. Uh, obviously, Yamaha have made a lot of changes over the years, so they've already they've already shown that they're testing a lot more bits and pieces. Um, the Suzuki's program was fairly simple because you know they have this engine that's nearly got Sylvain Guintoli disqualified in Mategi for using it when he wasn't supposed to. Um, uh, but we saw lots of new parts of Yamaha. We saw there's actually quite a few parts in Suzuki as well, chassis parts. Arms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, swing arm, uh, the carbon swing arm at uh, the Franco Morbidelli got a go on the sw- carbon swing arm. There was a new engine, a new chassis at uh, Yamaha. There was a some updated engine parts and a new chassis at uh, Ducati. Um, there was a, a pretty radically different uh, chassis in KTM. Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, K- yes. But KTM has been sort of a, a bit bonkers. It's a little bit difficult for KTM as well. So Zarco is the departure of Zarco. Um, even though Zarco is quite um, was never really fast on the KTM, it does mean that that the development is basically being done by uh, Paul Spargro because Miguel Oliveira is recovering from his shoulder injury. Yeah, there's a, there, there was a lot. There was a lot going on. Um, it was interesting. It felt like uh, the, I mean, Maverick Vinales was very, very positive. Well, he was so positive that it was hard to make sense of what he was saying. Um, he was very comfortable with the new engine, liked it, had a little bit more uh, work. But this test is difficult to assess because it's the first proper run out for everyone on their new kit. Um, yeah. Exactly. It really is a basic, just a sort of a first, a first sort of taste of it. And everyone is, I mean, 
you and me have both been looking at each other and, you know, wanting the world to just stop for about a month so we can get a bit of rest. Same with the MotoGP riders. You really saw it. Um, I was in, in a pit lane waiting for Park Ferme for the podium ceremony after the race. And the, 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 the release of intensity at Park Ferme in there is, is very different to any other race, just because you can feel the whole tension of, a, of the entire season evaporate. But it leaves you, you know, you've been running on adrenaline for so long that, that's, uh, it just leaves you exhausted. And that was, that was the real thing in, uh, in, in, I think for testing, it makes it very difficult for people to assess because they're all just, Tired, they want to go home. It's the emotional emptiness that does me rather than the physical exhaustion. <laughs> That's what I can't handle. So, God knows what it must be like for, uh, for the riders out there. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. So, yeah, they're, they're um, apart from Fabio Quartararo, who's always trying to set a fast lap, um, uh, there weren't, wasn't so much chasing times. There was a lot of, um, there was an awful lot of work going on, but there was also a lot of basic work, setup work being done. Um, Jerez uh, next Monday and Tuesday, I think it's going to be a much more important test than this one. So that means we're going to uh, fast forward to uh, the winners and losers from the final weekend of 2019. Um, I guess I'll start with you, David. Who was your winner? I I am going to go with Jorge Lorenzo because he walked away from the sport. Um and he walked away with dignity and he walked away um, with respect. Um, he was, this has been a, yet yeah, healthy. This has been a decision his, that's been at the back of his mind since uh, Assen, basically since he was rolling through the gravel in Assen. He sort of, he sort of said that he's rolling through the gravel and thought, don't want to do this. Um, and um, talking to lots of other ex-riders, they all said exactly the same. You know, you're rolling through the ground and you're like, think, you know, why? Why yeah. am I doing this? Yeah, when your automatic reaction isn't to run and pick up the bike. That's right. Get back out and track as soon as possible. Yeah, exactly. That's when you know, you know, the time has come. I think the time had come for Lorenzo. Um, he leaves as a great champion. Uh, he will be remembered as a great champion. Um, better this than trying to soldier, soldier on another year where maybe he's still struggling with confidence, struggling with injury, struggling on a bike he never, never gone with. Um, even the 2018 bike he could do things with. Um, uh, he could be competitive, but he never really, never really enjoyed it, never, never really liked it. So it's, um, uh, I think, uh, Lorenzo comes out of this looking good well looking the best out of yeah uh, he comes away for me as the winner of the weekend because he uh because he leaves with dignity and and you uh i i'm going to go with uh, jack miller because i think uh Jack has been, well, we mentioned this earlier, much improved in the second half of this year. Uh, really good performance from him on Sunday. Um, I mean, none of the big main challenges at the front crashed out and he put the Ducati on the podium at Valencia. Valencia's never really been a Ducati track. No, I mean, that's that's a real sign of positivity for a really positive sign for Ducati because they've never been competitive here. You know, Phillip Island, lots of tracks where they've been bad and now all of a sudden they're, they're and now really they're competitive. 
And I think the last three races have been a bit of a microcosm of, of where Jack Miller's at at the moment because we had that fantastic podium at, at Phillip Island where he used his head, managed his tires through the race um, to well get third place at the head of a pretty monstrous fight. Um, and then the next weekend, he was at Sepang telling us on Saturday that he was going to be possibly fighting for the win. Um, but uh, crazy front tire temperature in the opening laps caused him to drop all the way down through the top 10. And then he's back again on the podium at Valencia. So there still is that kind of up and down roller coaster nature to, to some of his performances. But I think now we're starting to see a lot more good than uh, than bad for Jack Miller, and you know his talent is without question. But um, just how he understands um, going fast, I think uh, working well through a weekend and uh, working, focusing all his efforts on making sure that he's in the best possible shape for the race and to be consistent through the race. Um, I think we've seen his racecraft come on a lot this year. Um, and uh, yeah, he went toe to toe with Davizioso at uh, Valencia and uh, came out on top. And yeah, I mean, let's be honest um, the speculation about Petrucci being out of the factory Ducati team would have been entirely cruel, but Miller's comfortably outperformed Petrucci in the second half of this year. And uh, yeah, I think Valencia was another example of that. I think uh, this bodes pretty well for Jack going forward in. Um, in 2020. Yeah, I mean, you have to say also that, you know, Miller is getting stronger. We're seeing Quattro Vinales is getting stronger. Um, Mark is Mark. Um, it, this is what, this is what the future of MotoGP looks like, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And Jack Miller is, is one of the players. Yeah, there was, a, I think it was in FP4 at one point over the weekend. The top six or seven riders were Marquez, Quattro Vinales, Miller, Rins, and Mir. And I thought, okay, that's that's probably a good snapshot of what MotoGP is going to be like in 2021, 22, yeah, 23. 20, 2020. Yeah, <laughs> 2020. Yeah, exactly. So Miller's my my big winner from the weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, he would uh, certainly figure high on the list of uh, the most improved riders, I think, in 2019. Your big loser. Uh, I am going to stay with the Ducati theme and go with Danilo Petrucci, I think. Um, he tried... Um, tried to help win the team championship for Ducati, crashed out of the race. Uh, all of these rumours about um, him being bumped out and maybe ending up in the Avinta team if he's lucky. Um, uh, he's banged his shoulder, he's damaged his shoulder uh, in a crash a few races ago. Uh, he hurt it again in uh, in the Valencia race. Um, he's just had a bit of a, a bit of a torrid weekend and. Uh, the thing I wish for Danilo Petrucci is for him to, to go home, have a little bit of a holiday, uh, not think about much and, you know, come back again next year. But it was, this was not the ending of the season that he needed. It certainly wasn't for Danilo. I'm going to say, uh, the Mark VDS team, Joanne, Joanne Levy. Very good shout. Yeah. Um, because they've, well, they should be, uh, resting on uh, well not resting on the laurels but uh, celebrating a, a fine year of uh, work and celebrating a championship that was uh, hard earned in the end um, and what they have instead of that is a, a massive dilemma of what to do for 2020 they've obviously signed Sam Lowe's but that's a two rider team and the second seat remains very much open they've lost their principal rider and a guy they were probably banking on to fight for the championship next year and they've also 
well, yeah, if I mean, that's just a, that's a huge hole to fill um, and there's yeah, no the, real obvious candidate. Exactly. And also the, the risk is that they... Other than Zarko, by the way. Yeah, other than Zarko. Yeah, I think if Zarko goes there, then it could be, uh, then it would be a good move. But this will also um, upset Mark van der Straten, the uh, beer belly, a billionaire who funds this entirely as a hobby. Beer belly billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit I, coming for especially coming from me um uh but the thing is like th this is his hobby his hobby is um uh spending his money on a competitive race team um e expecting to end up on the podium during the weekend so that he can get up there spray the champagne about um uh drink whiskey with his mates um uh, and enjoy the atmosphere of the paddock and then go home feeling satisfied and taking away the reigning motor 2 champion um, puts a severe dent in that. And the way it's been handled, especially, is going to accept, accept him, uh, upset him. And I think this risks the future, uh, you know, his future plans. He may decide, we saw it with MotoGP, went to MotoGP, it didn't work out. Pfft, right. Let's sod this. Let's not do this. Let's go. Let's go and do something else instead. Went back to Moto2 and was doing really, really well. Um, we risk losing. Mark van der Straten's money um, and his willingness to invest in uh, you know the, the whole structure around it. You know he's he's paying the right engineers, he's paying the right mechanics, he's paying the best people to do their job well, giving them the resources they need to do their job well. Um, and there are very few people who are actually willing to do that. And so losing Mark van der Straten would be a really, really big deal, I think. So, yeah, not just the Mark VDS team for 2020, but 2021, 2022. Yeah, could be, uh, could be tough. Um, although I still think um, Sam has had a difficult year. I still think uh, Sam... Um, with uh, new surroundings and uh, that expertise they have in that team with two riders, I think that can be. He can still uh, come back and uh, start showing what oh, a good rider he yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, no one doubts Sam Lowe's speed. We Sam's problem is that he doesn't finish often enough, and that is um, uh, when he makes his mistakes, he makes them in the race, and that's that, that's really that's really costly. The um, you know Mark van der Straten could easily be on the podium. You know, several times this year, Sam could be on the podium a few times this year. Um, Next year, 2020 hasn't started already. All right? It did. It started. No. It, it started on no, Tuesday. It didn't. <laughs> but testing Moto Two on where in Jerez already, so it's definitely started already. So, but yeah, it's um, uh, uh, yeah, in, in, in 2020. Then uh, I, I think Sam can have a good year, but it's not what Mark van der Straten was banking on. He was banking on uh, having a defending champion who will be winning regularly and maybe winning a championship. And I think that is, uh, uh, I, I think that's really bad. And I think the way it was handled is going to upset them. And that really, to me, is the danger. Mm, okay, interesting points of discussion as always and uh, on that note what better note to uh, sign off from this episode of the paddock pass podcast thank you dear listener for uh, sticking with us thank you dear listener for sticking with us through this episode uh, sticking with us through the entire year as well i think this has been our fifth year as uh, a podcast uh, bringing you news from the motor gp paddock and also uh, also this year uh, bringing you lots of uh, interesting updates from uh, world superbike as well and um, probably a timely 
moment to remind you that uh, we have several social media channels that you should be following uh, on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. And if you find us on an Apple podcast device, please do leave us a review because it helps us find new listeners out there around the world. We also have a Patreon page. Also, SoundCloud, oh. Spotify. Oh, so uh, make sure you oh, uh, look for growing. Pad- oh yes, oh yes, yes. There is uh, there is no escaping the inevitability of the Paddock Pass podcast on all uh, all possible channels. So please, if you like us on, uh, if you listen to us on Spotify, um, uh, give us a give us a, a wee like there. Okay, yes, and uh, Patreon. We have a Patreon page as well. This has been a something a new feature we've uh, started up this year. Uh, we have a Patreon page in which there is, uh, well, quite a little bit of additional content. Uh, We we have uh, uh, up there at the moment from this weekend is Alberto Puig's explanation of why he signed Alex Marquez, Valentino Rossi talking about the 2020 bike uh, from uh, from the test on Tuesday. Uh, I'll be posting a little bit more audio probably uh, tomorrow or uh, today or Thursday for more riders speaking about the bikes. Uh, I'll be at the Jerez test. So if you want to get audio, if you want to hear what the riders have to say for themselves from the Jerez test, make sure you uh, chip in a few bucks a month and um, you will get to hear that. Yes, there's uh, as little as $3 a month it costs to uh, sign up to our Patreon page for those lovely extra goodies. It is pretty much as good as having a paddock pass in this MotoGP paddock. So thanks again for your company on this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, dear listener. And uh, we hope to be back again with you soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new... AGV K6. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Okay, that's very disturbing. Uh, right, I better press fucking stop.